0: Hi, I'm Fabio and this is Captico Talks, a podcast where I talk with creative entrepreneurs and explore their successes, failures, fears and ambitions and all the hard work and grit they went through to make their ideas come to life. And today I'm talking with Matt Rooksmith, the founder and CEO of Future Workshops, a digital product company based in the heart of London that has been focusing on creating products that people love for more than 10 years. Matt has funded his business from his vision and passion for the mobile world. And right when Steve Jobs announced the first iPhone, Matt had the confirmation that his passion would succeed making mobile apps that would excel in user experience. In this amazing conversation, we talk about the importance of investing and owning your own ideas, the importance of diversity in business and in your team, and the responsibility that business owners have in the current local and global political affairs, and much, much more. But before that, let me explain what is Captico and what led us to create the Captico Talks. Every time I try to share great videos with my 12 years old niece, it's a real pain. Every time I spend a large amount of effort to find stories that will have some impact on her, and every time she struggles to grasp most of it. But what makes her struggle so much? Why can't just she understand what I send? Most of the great stories I find are narrated in English and Here's the catch, she's Portuguese. This is our problem. We can find all this amazing content online, explained by these passionate and interesting teachers that spend hours deconstructing very complex subjects. And the best I can do is basically trying to translate the gist of it. And by the way, I'm really bad at it. Sometimes I even go to lengths of transcribing and translating every sentence. Just so she can get access to a new perspective, a new way of looking to things or probably a new idea. And that's really important for me. The Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein has this statement that I think about very often. He says The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Nowadays we have access to an entire world rich of information, but we tend to be limited by the languages we speak or the languages that we manage to learn in our lifetimes. And technology has come a long way to enable us to cross these limits by providing us with machine translated content, for example. But as you might have noticed, these solutions often lack the ability to understand context, the nuances of language, and they mostly struggle with linguistic creativity, slang, or accents. The problem we're trying to solve at Captico isn't a new one. It's an important one. I want to expand the limits of my niece's world by expanding her access to amazing content, new ideas, and a whole new form of education, the one created by the best teachers in the world, yes, those ones you usually find on YouTube, disconstructing philosophical concepts or very complex mathematical operations like machine learning or cryptocurrencies. So the goal of Captico is to create a community of people that can transcribe, translate and caption amazing content, where people can help each other, translating content into multiple languages, so that my niece, your niece and eventually your sons and daughters can get access to the best teachers in the world, independently of where they live, the languages they natively speak, or are currently learning. The internet has given us an amazing platform for spreading ideas, a place where the best stories win. And that's exactly why we started these Captico Talks, to find these amazing teachers, learn more about how they make their ideas happen, transcribe and translate all the content, and make it available in any language that we can think of, so that we can inspire everyone else to do the same. That's a really important thing for me and everyone at Captico, to provide you with the tools and the community to share your ideas and help anyone share theirs. That's Captico, and if you are interested to know more or to support us in any way or to just drop me a line, I'm available at Fabio at CapTico.io. And now let's listen to Matt and his great story. Enjoy. Thank you very
1: much, Matt, for making this. Uh, nice. It's really, really nice that you actually... Had the time to do this and uh, the patient as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like, one wow. of the things I would like to ask you, like, straight away is like, how Future Workshop came to be. Yeah. And uh, tell me, like, the story so that everyone knows, like, what is Future Workshops and uh, how this came to be.
2: Okay, sure. Um, well, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. First <laughs> of all, thanks for being interested. Uh, it's always, yeah, flattering when somebody asks you mm. to, I mean, yeah. To, to ask about uh different things so so yeah so future workshops obviously it's a it's the company i'm ceo and founder of mm-hmm. um today so we've been in uh, business over 10 years as our 10 year anniversary this year which is a very proud very proud moment um so rewinding back in time um i started my career working in a, in a corporate i worked for a, for an american bank um but before that i was Computer science graduate, um, and I had a great experience working at this working at this corporate. I learned a lot, and um, there were some really professional, intelligent people there, and they taught me about, you know, how to how to um, how to build uh, tech in in corporates. Um, but after sort of three four years of doing that, I, I kind of felt like I was underusing the skills that I'd learned at university, and I also felt like, you know what. This was a different time, you know, I was working in a bank, and the core business of the bank was not technology. The core business of the bank was was money and moving people's money around for them and, and keeping it safe and investing it. So I kind of had this idea, you know, <clears throat> when I, when I was there, they always talked about the business and the cost centers, and IT was always considered a cost center. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really wanted to be part of what drove the business, not part of a cost. To the business, I didn't want to feel like a kind of uh, uh, like something that was slowing the business down in some way. So, combining those things together, I, I basically decided that I was gonna gonna leave um, the company I work for and start a business with a with a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, we started that business, and it was horribly uh, unsuccessful. And I think after after six months of working in the business together, we we sat down to have an honest chat. And we brought along the bank statement, and the bank statement from six months of hard work said something like 258 pounds split two ways. <laughs> so we were like, oh, okay, we need to change this. It's not working out. Um, so then. Was,
1: was, that, was that like the, the decision to close the business, like just like money issues, or was it something else as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was just that we didn't really. I mean, we kind of came from a corporate world where we thought building a product was going to be enough to build a great business. And we realised, you know, that actually things like marketing were really important, things like sales, mm-hmm. um, and that's before you even get into thinking about hiring people or you know the operational side of a business. Um, so we were pretty naive, um, but it was it was fun, and again, we we learned a lot. Um, so actually, we didn't close the business. I bought my partner out by giving him one hundred and twenty. <laughs> whatever it was eight pounds uh and he transferred the shares to me and then i kind of i kind of kept that company um uh i guess i was the shareholder for that uh-huh. company uh, and then i went off and I, I did something else for a couple of years which was i i basically ran a company that um recorded video and photos when you went on a roller coaster or when you did some kind of attraction and we sold the video and the photo back to the, the person who'd been on the ride so yeah. it was super cool uh very Fun business again, I learned a lot there and we, we did have a product we did have a business. We, we sold to real people, mm-hmm. we fought tooth and nail for every pound and every penny. And, uh, you know, we had systems that were up and running 24 seven across the world. So we were in, um, um, Los Angeles in universal studios. We were in, um, Milton Keynes, we were in Bedford and we were in Dubai um and we were building up to installing systems in asia as well mm-hmm. um so it was great experience again um but um for various reasons i didn't really see eye to eye with my business partner and we had an opportunity to exit the business so yeah. we did um and then for about for about a year i'd, I'd you know before the app store came out i would had an iphone and mm-hmm. i had been telling people this is the future this is the future and people are like uh eh. You know, zero point zero one percent of the world has an iPhone. How could it possibly be the future? And all of a sudden, I had a bit of money from exiting this business. I had this this business that I kind of kept on the side. This this uh, limited company that mm-hmm. I kept on the side, um, and I had a lot of passion for the for the iPhone. And um, basically, people started coming to me and just saying, "Can you build apps? Can you build mm-hmm. apps for us? We really we really need apps and one of our first customers was a company called, um, called ClickView. It's now called Click. Yeah. And it's a, it's a public company traded on the NASDAQ. Um, okay. It's a huge company. And I was trying to convince at the time because I was really into mobile, that was my thing. I was really trying to convince the CTO of that company that they needed a, a BlackBerry uh-huh. app because all of the business people were using Blackberries at that time. And so I was like, look, mm-hmm. your company provides um, business intelligence to companies, everybody inside your customers has a BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. Why don't you have a BlackBerry app? Yeah. And so he was like, yeah, okay, I'm kind of interested in that. And (laughs) we had a a call about it and I gave him a demo. I had this kind of really simple demo put together and he was like, yeah, I'm kind of interested, but but what about the iPhone? What do you think about the iPhone? And I was like, wow, you know, this is CTO of a, you know, of an up and coming company. Everybody else is telling me that the iPhone doesn't mean anything. And this guy seems to get it. And so... We wrote out a contract and we started working with that company, and mm-hmm. we built products that basically helped them. I mean, they did a lot themselves. We did a small bit, but basically helped them in their journey to become a publicly traded billion dollar mm-hmm. company on the on the New York <laughs> Stock Exchange, which was an incredible ride. That sounds really um, interesting.
1: Because, like, I'm I'm interested to know like how did you thought the iPhone to be successful, even though like, right. nobody was thinking about that? Yeah, why yeah. did you like Kept believing that what made you like yeah interested. Right,
2: right. So so um when I was in my corporate job,
0: uh-huh.
2: me and my business partner, we actually we actually shared a flat together. Mm-hmm. And we were both super passionate about mobile, mobile devices. And because we had some money all of a sudden, because we were mm-hmm. working, we weren't students anymore, we'd always buy the latest phones. And those are things like Sony Ericsson's, Nokia's um mm-hmm blackberries um samsung uh you know the the famous um flip phone that was in uh, yeah. the matrix and so we were really into these and and
1: was it like for fun
2: that this was for fun and, oh, for, yeah. and because we were stupid and young and we had too much money <laughs> you know disposable income and um we basically were thinking like and it was really hyped at the time every year people would say i when, when we do like it was a real thing at the time. Blogging was just kind of coming up. People were like, what, what do you think is going to happen this year in tech? Mm-hmm. That was a really popular thing to do. What are your um, predictions for this year? And every What year, year was this? Just like this. Uh, so this was probably 2003, 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Every year, people would say, this year is the year of mobile.
1: Okay,
2: That's what would happen. And we were like, yeah, this year is going to be the year of mobile. And then we would get these phones that hardware-wise, they look really cool. They were really, you know, maybe nice brushed metal or they had this kind of flip thing or maybe they had like a touchscreen, which was really revolutionary at the time, probably with a stylus because
0: mm-hmm.
2: it was a different kind of touchscreen. Um, and then, so we were like, right, let's build some software because we were, well, were software engineers. Let's build some software. And we started building software and it was the worst experience ever. Oh my goodness. It was this technology called J2ME and it was just... Um, another world. It was like going back in time, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, compared to what we were doing in our day job, which was, you know, developing, um, you know, web-based systems. And so we just thought, like, oh my God, this is terrible. And actually that our first business was around building apps mm-hmm. for J2ME devices. So mobile devices. Um, and what we found was that not only was the development experience really poor, but the distribution experience was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to go through an operator, so, you know, Vodafone or O2. And we approached a couple of these guys. I won't mention any names. Yeah. And they were like, no, nah, we don't think this is going to be a big thing. We don't believe in, you know, these kind of gamey type things or whatever. Or, or where they did what they wanted to do was have a handful of apps that they would promote and that they would take 90% of the revenue mm-hmm. on. So the developer would probably get 10, 10%, and they would get 90%. Yeah. So So, um, you know, obviously that makes Apple's 30% cut look a mm-hmm. lot more reasonable, mm-hmm. which was, the, that's kind of how, I, I believe that's where that came yeah. from. Um, so then, you know, when the iPhone came out, there was a jailbreak community. And um, I kind of picked that up a little bit and I played around with it a little bit. And, you know, anyone who seriously used an iPhone knew it was light years ahead of what was, mm-hmm. what was there before. Mm-hmm. Anyone who was really serious about it there were lots of naysayers, but that's because they were, in some way, probably anti-Apple. A lot of people were very anti-Apple; they still are today. But but back then, mm-hmm. people were like, "Apple's like high end; it's already been beaten." You know, Apple's approach doesn't scale; they lose out to modular. You know, people like Microsoft. Are, you know, in the end, so people very much had that kind of mindset. But but as a software engineer, when you use the iPhone and when you develop for the iPhone, you knew. Whether it was apple or somebody else that was going to be the future and just over a year later they fixed the other problem that we'd had in our business which Mm -hmm. was the distribution problem and the way they fixed that was with the app store but the beauty was that they already had probably i don't know how many iphones they sold, i think it was like a million iphones they had a million absolutely rabid people who were like this is the future and as soon as they fixed the distribution mechanism with the official SDK so you could develop apps and the app store to distribute and sell things. And they weren't taking 90%, they were taking 30%. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. Yeah. All of a sudden, the logjam broke. and It was like, boom, you know, it's not the future, it's now. Mm-hmm. So it
1: seems like you were like experimenting with all of these yeah. phones, all of these adware, mm-hmm. all this software. And then was that what led to, to future shops or was it like... Was some there was something else in between? They uh, were experimenting with.
2: So um, that's kind of that was that was definitely the it was definitely that kind of mixture of um, having a background in mobile, wanting mobile to be a thing, and wanting to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Having a background in Apple, so we did that with our with my second business. Mm-hmm. We used um, a lot of Apple video type systems, and we got we learned a lot about Apple and this crazy language that Apple had called Objective. C, um, <laughs> that nobody knew anything about, and people hated the look of because it has these kind of square angular brackets. Right. And you know, developers, you know, especially these days, care about aesthetics, and developers didn't like that. And so, 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 okay, so the, there were a couple of components there's me caring about mobile and being excited by mobile, there was the fact that I'd i had a background in Apple development, so I knew Objective C, there was, um, this kind of feeling that the iPhone was actually fixing two of the major problems that mobile had experienced up to that point and then what I also had was um I've been kind of um you know to be honest kind of kicking around for a couple of years talking to people about running a business and networking and and whatever and when the iPhone came out nobody knew how to build apps mm-hmm. but there were, there were there was this set of rabid people who really mm-hmm. believed in the iPhone and I was lucky enough and I hope. Uh, uh, he won't mind me saying this, but the the CTO of um, of ClickTech, he mm-hmm. was one of those you know million rabid people who's just <laughs> like, this is amazing, this is going to change the world. You know, he got behind it. We connected, and then there were a set of other people who who felt the same way um, across um, at that time, particularly financial institutions mm-hmm. in London. And because of my background, I could kind of connect That's with fun. these people. Yeah. I had credibility. And so, you know, future workshops, you know, if you look at our, our customer list, mm-hmm. you know, we work for Credit Suisse, we work for UBS, um, RBS. Mm-hmm. Um, we work for um, various other financial institutions that we can't yeah. even talk about. Yeah. And we were in that position because of those mixture of things, because I had credibility, because I knew, I understood the business in finance. Mm-hmm. Fin- financial uh, services, people put a lot, of, a lot of weight on understanding the business and, and rightly so. Um,
1: but it seems like you didn't have uh, ex- any experience on running an agency. So sure. how was like future yeah. shops in the right, like the very beginning? Yeah, it yeah.
2: Like- definitely. So I definitely didn't. And, I, and I, I can even remember the point where realizing that agency was actually a viable business model. Because uh-huh. like pre- previously, you know, you think about, okay, what does it actually take to survive and grow a business? You know, what's the size of project, you know, commercially that you need in order to do that? And we had a couple of those coming in, and I remember very early, um, you know, maybe before the iPhone came out, we had a couple of opportunities to do those things. And just thinking, like, there's no way that we can actually turn this into a business. There's not enough opportunity. the 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 size of the projects are not enough. You know, I need to eat, and I need to pay my mortgage because I I just bought a house with a very patient friend, <laughs> <laughs> and um. um that really changed when it came over to mobile because all of a sudden people were ready to commit proper budgets to the project the agency obviously the agency world had always been there it's just that we weren't in those conversations Mm. about the properly scoped budgets for big projects to actually deliver core value to companies now with mobile i mean literally there was a point where i could walk into any company in the uk i mean i i went to I I just through an email. I emailed Aston Martin, they said come mm. down. I emailed McLaren, they said come to our, you know, come to our factory. Mm. All the financial institutions in the city of London. Um, um internationally, you know, ClickTech was based in Sweden. You mm. know, why would they work with somebody in London? But right. but you got to understand that it was a different landscape at that at that time. Mm. And and people are like really trying to get to grips with the opportunity and anyone who had some um, domain knowledge, you know, was really well placed mm-hmm. to go and help them.
1: So, you, are, you actually like cold call these companies, or are you just like?
2: So, uh, so actually, what happened was I'm that
1: really interested to understand yeah. how did you get like the first yeah, client? Yeah. Because I don't know, that seems yeah. to be like an important stage when you're so, trying to build yeah, so something.
2: Definitely. So, the first client was the Click, click Tech, as I, as I explained. The, the way that I got those guys was actually so after I exited my second business. I didn't really have anything to do and I was doing some consultancy and that consultancy, I was basically consulting in their product. Mm -hmm. So I understood their product exactly. And that gave me a connection with the head of sales for Europe. Yeah. Because everywhere I went to consult in their product, he was selling licenses, selling licenses. So I had a really good connection with this guy. Mm -hmm. And I was telling him, you know, I mean, we go out for beers a lot, you know, um, I I don't want it. I don't understand like that was kind of the genesis of future workshops kind of having a dream <laughs> but um that was part of creating a connection with this with this um guy a guy called andy honus um and then you know i used to just always go on about him on email and i used to send him screenshots and videos of the prototypes i was building and what he would do is he would forward them on uh-huh. and then finally we got to this point where you know obviously when the app store came out the you know the cto at clicktech was like right we We've got to do something right here. Time. I don't have the capability inside my organization. Who do I know? And I was there at the, at the right time. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be there. And so what that initial customer gave me was the, the right language to talk about mobile with. Mm-hmm. Because the way that I talked about mobile with him then gave me a vocabulary and a way to go out and actually start chatting with people. And what I did from there was that I started, um, I, I had other connections as well, and I started showing them what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they would say, okay, I, I think I know somebody. And because of the way the market was at that time, everyone was searching for anyone who had a clue. Mm-hmm. So I got connected into a lot of people. And then I was also going to a lot of startup meetups. And at one startup meetup, I met this guy. Mm-hmm. who's running a company um, called... Um, uh, it was called My Mission, mm-hmm. and the guy's name was David Ashford. And the My Mission company, um, he basically was trying to help people to achieve their life's mission. which was a really cool idea, but the company didn't work out. And after it didn't work out, he messaged me and said, hey, Matt, um, my company didn't work out. I'm trying to work out what to do next. Do you want to get together? So I met up with him, and he said, look, I can help you. I can do a few things here. I can show you how to write a basic sales presentation that works in an agency world. I can show you how to email people mm-hmm. and get, you know, that first call with them to discuss what, you, what you're what you going to do. And one of his great tactics was he said, look, um, another point, a side point. This was like at the depths of the financial crisis at this <laughs> yes. point, like at the very, very bottom. RBS, so 2008. Too. 2000 and, yeah. This is, actually, uh-huh. this is actually winter 2008 um, and RBS was just going, you know, bankrupt or, or nearly bankrupt before it uh-huh. got saved. Um, Lehman Brothers had just gone and everyone was like, this is Armageddon, you know, especially in London, in the yes. city of London. And um, what happened, he's, he came in and he said, look, all of these agencies that are out there, because he told me about the agency business model, and how it works mm-hmm. and how it runs. All of these agencies right now, they're going to be looking around for business and desperate for business. So what you can do is you can take a list of the top 100 agencies, from an industry magazine that was called, I can't remember, it'll come to me in a minute. <laughs> just go down that list and email them all and say, hey guys, uh, we, we're, we've we got great mobile skill set. Why don't you put us in front of your customers and you can sell your customers more things? Mm-hmm. It's a business opportunity. You don't need to invest any money, just partner with us. And so we did that and that actually um, was super successful. So we worked with a, a load of agencies like Saatchi, um, we worked with the agency for ITV, and that's how we did the Anyways Essex mm-hmm. um, apps. Mm-hmm. We ended up working with um, Top Gear. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked with um, um, a few of our um, existing customers today through that through that model. So then we had this kind of you know using my black book, and then we had this new sales pipeline that was being built by um, David Ashford, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of how we reached the point where. Um, you know, we've actually at that point I was still running future workshops with contractors, so it was me and and contractors, because I I wasn't really sure about the agency business model as you as yeah. you said. And I was like, wow, there's this is massive. And at the same time, what I really wanted to do, what I always wanted to do when I left Goldman's, was uh, that was the that was the bank I was working at, was build an environment where software engineers creative people felt that they were driving the business Mm -hmm. they're not secondary to a business which is what I was when I was working in the city they are the business they're Mm -hmm. driving it and I'd learned so much about how to how corporates are not ideal for people with that mindset Mm -hmm. and how I wanted to build my business and how I wanted people who were like yes I want to be in the front I want to be driving this business I love the adrenaline I love the passion you know, I want to be out there doing things for people, making a difference, uh-huh. delivering, not sat under big documents or, you know, layers and layers of project management. Um,
1: How many people like future yeah. workshops has like right now?
2: So today future workshops is 36, uh-huh. 36 people. Plus we obviously have a few people who kind of contract for us as uh-huh. well. So like when we talk about it, we say like 40, it's around yeah. 40 people. So
1: it seems like your drive, actually drove all the, the success of future workshops right now. And how yeah. did, how did you actually upscale that drive into yeah. something that is forty people big? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like there's plenty of people that work here and they're happy to work here. Yeah. Yeah. How did that I drive in? <laughs> Apparently you work here, I'm very glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true. Um, it's like I how, how did that drive of like yeah. making people feel that they are relevant, that they, they rather than relying on right. all the documents that you need to look at. Right, 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 right. Like bringing the creativity into the table as well. How, how did that happen? Like, I'm interested, yeah. like, when it goes from zero to 40, yeah. like in the between time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, um, I think everyone will tell you this. Um, <laughs> it wasn't without mistakes. Uh-huh. It wasn't without speed bumps. Um, you know, it's not like, it's not like 40 people makes us like the biggest, most successful mm-hmm. company in, in in the UK startup scene by a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we are su- successful at is creating an environment where both our customers and both and, and the team members here want to stay in the company. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the biggest achievement at Future Workshops yeah. because you know yourself, it's possible to walk out the door here and trip over 10 job offers, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not hard to find another job in 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 tech in london mm-hmm. um and so so how do we get to that point where we have this kind of you know and, and i always think of future workshops as as something that is alive and is it's not me i'm separate from future workshops mm-hmm. i contribute to future workshops but the beauty is that it has a life of its own now you know it's self-sustaining in a yeah. lot of ways and that's thanks to the passion that people have brought into the company and the way that we worked initially with Future Workshops is that we had this concept of a lead developer. And the lead developer was basically, um, <laughs> I guess, so... Our mindset was very much our mindset of we we don't need layers and layers of bureaucracy. We're just going to build stuff for our customers, and they're going to be really happy. And they were. Um,
1: so you were driven by making rather than we were very, making very much driven by making, very yeah. much
2: driven by making rather than business. And mm-hmm. business was a success because we made good things. Yeah. Um, but by the way, it wasn't that we just made them and hoped people would come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that was where the agency model came in. Was that mm-hmm. obviously we were getting paid to make these things. Um, we had this concept of a lead developer and our customers loved it because they didn't have to wade through lots of documentation. And, and um, we didn't even really know too much about Agile at the time, which mm. sounds super rubbish. <laughs> uh, but we had this lead developer and basically the lead developer would be the project manager, the UX person, the developer, the QA, um, the account manager. He would do everything. He or she would do everything on the project bar visual design. And mm-hmm. visual design. We had a we had a, we did try and do a bit of visual design first up uh, when we started future workshops, and we one of our projects got featured in a book of of ten top ten anti patterns, <laughs> and so we learned really quickly that that was a bad idea. And we worked with we partnered with this um, with this company called the Noble Union, mm-hmm. uh, and the Noble Union is two brothers, incredible designers. You know, when I first started working with them, I mean. Yeah, I don't think I had any ath- aesthetic uh, uh, appreciation at all <laughs> before I started working with those guys. And they showed, you know, they, they were incredible. They could turn around, you know, world-class design, visual design in, in days. Mm-hmm. And what they would do that was brilliant and I, didn't, I hadn't seen anyone else do and I didn't see for a long time after that was they would make apps feel like they were right for the platform, but they would also use the brand of the customer. Mm-hmm. So they would combine the platform and the brand together and they would do that really fast and the designs were polished and beautiful and everything that people were looking for in apps at, at the time. So we partnered with those guys. So then that was kind of the first stage of Future mm-hmm. Workshops. And I think we got to like maybe like 12 people when we were running 12 projects. And and basically I was doing everything that wasn't related to development, but I was also developing as well. Mm-hmm. And so we were in this situation where we were having a great time, but it didn't feel like it could grow much more than that because it wasn't. And so um our cto at that time um a guy called fabio galato mm-hmm. who is um uh, unfortunately not future workshops um anymore um he was thinking about this he's, he's, a, he's a he's a deep thinker mm-hmm. and he was basically saying well look you know we should be looking at other disciplines here and trying to um work out how we can improve what we do for our customers using those other disciplines and we hired um it's a very long story that I want to go A <laughs> lady called uh, Jenny, Jenny Brimbleau, Uh And it was really a bit of a flyer. You know, she was talking about UX and we were like, well, UX, what's that? But it sounds important and it makes sense that we think about our cust- the customer, the user of our apps a lot more than we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And we also have, we're also we also in this world where we really were very responsive or reactive, I should say, to business stakeholders. So They would say, hey, I want my app to look a bit like that um, Tapbots app or a bit like that game over there. And I want it to be have lots of bright colors and ringing no- bell noises. Mm. And, and we wouldn't really have any way to push back against that and tell them yeah. that that's not a good idea. And so what UX did was basically create a structure for us to understand the end user in, a, in an objective manner
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then use that to help design our, our, our products and Jenny came in and did that. And then there have been many other stages along the way. Mm-hmm. So places, times where we've got kind of, I guess, not not stuck exactly, but maybe we, we reached the limit of the current structure, yeah. what the current structure would do. So, you know, um, having the first person to be a project manager, um, hiring somebody to do studio management and administration, mm-hmm. um, opening an office in Barcelona, Um Realising that we should be talking about platforms as well as apps, as well as apps, all of these things have helped us to kind of modify the approach to the company and and um, you know I guess um, evolve.
1: Yeah, you're touching two, to- in two topics that I'm yeah. really interested. One is you said there's plenty of jobs out there. Yeah, and we keep the retention here like very high. Yeah, how do you do that? What yeah. do you think are the elements to do that?
2: Um, So I don't think there's any, I don't think that there's any, anything, any kind of magic. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that, I think that we make a lot of mistakes though. Like there's so many areas that I want to get better at, but what's been really important to me, I think is a couple of things. Having um, where possible, you know, um, this kind of line manager construct where your line manager is also as much as possible an expert in the discipline that you work in, Mm -hmm. I think is really, 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 really helpful. So making sure that as a company, we're focused on flipping, um, flipping the, um, like normally in a company, a hierarchy would be, there would be a hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be like, um, you know, you kind of think about it as as a pyramid, like a traditional consultancy. There's a lot of junior people at the bottom and then there's fewer, you know, yeah. senior people and then there's fewer management and then there's, you know, like a C, a, a kind of C level. So the way that we originally thought about it at Future Workshops and I really think this still holds is about flipping that on its head. Oh. So actually the people at Future Workshops that we try, to, all of our um, operational um, procedures in place to support are the people who make things. Mm-hmm. So the people who are actually working on our projects and building things the entire apparatus of the company is designed to support those people
0: mm-hmm.
2: instead of to instead of to control them if you like or 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 make them deliver things or yeah. make them become a return on investment in the money the yeah. companies put into them. So there's kind of that side of things. And then there's another side. So you know, one of the things that I find really hard with future workshops is actually talking about it in terms that have not become really worn and old. <laughs> but, and and I mean, obviously we're not, you know, we're not the biggest company in the world, but the success we've had, I think, is because we do actually put money behind things that other people just talk about. <laughs> and a great example of that is our training program. So everyone has, you know, 3,000 pounds a year to go and spend on, on training. And obviously, you know, we like to advise people on what we think is relevant to their job. And we don't, you know, we're obviously say to people if they want to go off and do something that's completely irrelevant, that we we support them, but they should do that with their own money. <laughs> um, but you know, I think that like we have been able to grow with people, and that's why we, people like Jonathan and Jenny, you know, people have stayed for seven, eight, nine years, yes. you know, in future workshops, mm-hmm. is because we've been able to grow yeah. with them, and they've seen their their growth is aligned to the company growth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we talk about that and we we put our money where our mouth is. We actually invest in that. And, you know, when I look at the accounts, it makes me really happy how much money we spend on training yeah, and how much money we spend on making sure everyone has the latest equipment in future workshops mm-hmm. um, and how much money we spend on other benefits as well. You know, that's like... For me, when I look at, like, rent, I go, ah, that's really annoying. <laughs> and when I look at training budgets and when I look at device spend and benefits, yeah. I go, yes, that's that's the reason that I created mm-hmm. Future Workshops is to make sure that all of the apparatus, all the mechanisms are there to to let people come into work and do a great job and get rewarded for it.
1: That's that's one of the things that I first came, uh, found when I came here to yeah. work at Future Workshops. Um because it's very hard to find out there people that invest on their talent. Mm. It's very easy to find someone that says, okay, this is an amazing opportunity for you and you can yeah. grow and stuff like that. But when someone is actually uh, actively investing on your talent, yeah. it's very hard to find. At least I didn't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And another thing that I'd love to ask you as well, because the culture here is like is very diverse. Mm. What's like the role of diversity yeah. at Future Workshops, and do you think that has like any stake on it? Let's say, <laughs> yeah. on the success of the company, or
2: sure, sure, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, I think um, what I realized really on, really early on in Future Workshops was that um, th- there were a couple of threads of commonality in all the work we do at Future Workshops. But there's also a lot of diversity in the work itself, mm-hmm. in the projects that we do. You know, we've got customers in in the Middle East. We've got customers in America. We've got customers in Scotland, in London. They're very different companies, very different organizations and very different people. And um, being able to, like, again, this is where, you know, you move into kind of the well-worn phrases, yeah. but, but this is something that, that <laughs> I experience every day. Be able to deliver the, the, the quality and the innovation that, keeps future workshops moving forward as a as a company mm-hmm. and sustains our brand and our reputation is it's it's absolutely critical that we that we have a diverse set of people, both in skill sets, in experiences, um, um, you know, in education, um, coming come in and 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 and, and working on, on those projects. And I mean, the kind of two things very early on that really kind of i guess helped me to realize how important that was one was obviously having you know fabio was one of our first um, employees who wasn't from the uk mm-hmm. and he brought complete different thinking into the company and that was incredible and part part of that was him personally but another part was his background and his experience from working in italy uh, and then we had jenny you know come in completely new skill set you know not mm-hmm. an engineering skill set at all and she bought you know, her, her, um, her degree in, um, in, in arts and her degree in sciences into future workshops. And that was a completely different education background combined with her, um, um, her work experiences, you know, globally and bring those things in together. We went from a company that was, we we had quite a, you know, obviously it was very male dominated Mm -hmm. because, you know, um, That was kind of, I guess that's just kind of how it grew up at the time. And we just had a a single skill set, software developer, Mm -hmm. lead developer. And then we had all of a sudden these kind of diverse ideas and thoughts coming into the company. Mm -hmm. And that was the way that we changed and we grew out of that first, let's say that first kind of um, stage of future workshops. And I realized how important it was. And another thing that I also realized was, I think how... um, at that time, you can bring, uh, let's say, you know, there are, there, are, there are ways that I wish the world worked, <laughs> that it doesn't work in. And it's, you know, I think what's really important is that you, you play your part in trying to change things and trying to change yeah. the world. And um, I realized that actually I had an opportunity to do that. You know, it wasn't just about like writing, nothing with writing blog post. It wasn't just like writing blog post. It was actually about, okay, well, i have got this company, I've got a load of customers and maybe, you know, I don't know, 15 people whose salaries I'm paying. And I can actually use that to try to make changes and, and see how they work and, and learn about what are the challenges in, in bringing diversity into an organization and, and, you know, can we use that to our benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, so so that that was incredible. And, you know, obviously... As a company, we'd love to see more women software developers. Just picking on one element of diversity that's been a challenge for us. Mm-hmm. So, what did we do about that? W- what we did was um, we started to more actively look for um, recruitment opportunities for women software mm-hmm. developers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that and and so so what I don't feel that we so so what we didn't do was treat anybody in the company differently at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, but what we did try to do was address. A diversity issue that I felt we had, and that was limiting the company. Mm-hmm. And I think we did it in a in 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 a way that I felt very comfortable with. Yeah. So it's not like we were saying to somebody internally that we were going to have any positive discrimination or anything like that. But instead, what we were trying to do was slightly modify our recruitment um, process yeah. so that we could address that diversity mm-hmm. issue and encourage more yeah more diverse thinking in, in the company. That's
1: amazing. Um, and actually, that segues very well into. Like one of the questions I would like to ask you, which is like the current political state on yep. like what's happening globally, not just in the UK.
0: Yeah.
1: Um how like how important do you feel like your role is into the 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 political statement yep. and what's happening? Yeah. And what do you think of the the political stage right now? Yeah. Right. Like, and how can I that impact <laughs> the diversity? Um, <laughs> sorry if that's okay, <laughs> What I think,
2: I think that, <clears throat> that I think that my country is, and, I, and you know, like somebody said something about me the other day, which was that <laughs> in the past, this is going back a couple of years, a yeah. good friend that I knew, we, we went to a charity auction together and they were, they were auctioning an item and it was like, nobody wanted it and it was expensive and stuff. And the auctioneer was like, okay, anyone who loves England, put your hand up. And I was like the first person to put my hand up because at that time, I really felt that, that England, the UK, I, I loved what I felt it stood for, mm-hmm. which was inclusion and open mindedness and being commercial and being innovative yeah, um, and using the fact that we were open minded and we were viewed as the people who were very accepting of other cultures mm-hmm. to enhance that commercial opportunity basically and I, and I love that I think that's like for me that's great right if you can combine your values with with business sense that's where you get mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. business opportunity um, so you probably guessed by now that I feel that we've <laughs> slightly gone awry from that uh, situation mm-hmm. so you know I think like what I've tried to do since the 2016 referendum result is understand from people who voted against my my uh, in in another way to me why they did that Um, and I'll be really honest I haven't found a compelling Mm -hmm. reason and at the same time I haven't seen that the promises that those people voted even for that original idea on have been fulfilled I mean okay to be fair compelling reason let's have more money to back our public services right okay I I totally get that it's just that I don't agree that that's going to happen or I don't believe that's going to happen um so that's kind of that's kind of the the state of the country and you know I would I would I will continue doing everything I can. So I you know I go out and do canvassing for yeah. the Liberal Democrats. It's not a political party that I agree with every single part of their policies on, but there are sim- essentially single very important issue that they're trying to change people's mm-hmm. opinions about some of the reasons that Brexit happened or Brexit is in process. Yeah. Um, going to people's votes, vote marches, um, you know, and, um, writing letters to my MP, which Mm -hmm. I do quite regularly, Keir Starmer. Um, and I don't know, I think like if you have an opinion, don't sit back. Yeah. So, so that's kind of that side of things. And then in terms of future workshops, I mean, we've got a massively diverse set of people here Mm -hmm. and the idea that, that, that would not have been an opportunity just i just find it insane like are you really telling me that i mean future workshops our revenue is 5 million us a Mm -hmm. year and we pay tax on in the uk and before the referendum result um all that money was coming through the uk economy Mm -hmm. you know we were paying out in salaries and bonuses and people were going out and spending that money in the uk economy yeah we're 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 tiny Mm -hmm. you know and what we've done is we've started investing in and it's not solely because of Brexit at all, but we yeah. obviously have a second um, office mm-hmm. in Barcelona and we're, we're starting to invest in other places around the world and that kills me as a, as a patriot. Yeah. You know, I, I I love what I thought my country stood for. Um, and um, what we're doing is we are making sure that the things we believe in, um, like, you know, being able to recruit people from different um, mm-hmm. backgrounds and, yeah. and countries and everything, it's still possible, mm-hmm. despite what absolute drivel the politicians yeah. end up
1: mm-hmm. uh, signing. <laughs> Definitely. And I think like, one of the things that makes uh, diversity even more interesting is the, the range of the clients that you have. Yeah. And you have lots of clients sure. in Saudi Arabia yeah. and Emirates, and you have like Future Workshops has a big presence in Saudi Arabia, and it has mm. uh, also in the Emirates and i was I'm really interested like how did that happen, mm. and what do you think of, like the Middle East is evolving, or mm. especially Saudi Arabia and the Emirates yeah, and how do you see that evolving comparing to the West? Is it like the same, or do you think they are evolving in a different way yeah sure, and I would love to to see your perspective on yeah. what's going up there
2: so i think um so obviously our yeah we have we have some big middle east middle eastern mm-hmm. customers um both in Dubai and in, in Saudi Arabia, which are, you know, two main commercial mm-hmm. markets. Um, so uh, what I what I think about those customers um, and what I believe is that we are there um, and the projects we're working on are projects that I feel, I feel very pleased about, I mm. feel very comfortable working on. Because what they're doing is they are enabling access for, for more people to use services that are either brand or government-related. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, before we started working with um, some of our customers, you'd have to travel 100 miles, uh, stand outside a, a, an office, mm-hmm. you know, in a very hot environment, very dusty, <laughs> queue, get a piece of paper, go somewhere else, you know. And that... Um, that situation obviously makes things less accessible for people mm-hmm. so I, I really I really believe that what we've done is 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 helping and improving the quality of life inside inside those countries mm-hmm. for people and that makes me really happy and um, especially going back to the idea that you know you know you can't necessarily the world is not the way that you necessarily want it to be yeah. not in the way that I necessarily <laughs> want it to be um but what I can do is i can i can work on things and i can i can change things in a way that i believe it, it is is aligned with the way that i believe mm-hmm. things should be um so then um you know in um, in saudi i think it's been incredible to be able to go there yeah. and you've experienced this mm-hmm. as well and you know we read a lot about saudi arabia in the newspaper and it seems like whenever saudi arabia does something wrong we jump on it and we say ah that's because they're different to us. Mm. That's why they've done this, made this mistake or done this thing that's wrong. And I'm not saying that those things are not wrong because I think the majority of people I've spoken to inside the country would, you know, when I've spoken to them about things in the media, they, they're they really sad that they've happened and they're sad that their country is being associated with that kind of activity. Um, but, um, you know, the reality is that that. Every country does things that are wrong. Yeah. Every society does things that are wrong. And I feel that in the in the West we jump on the fact that that societies are different and we use that to justify why the thing happened. Mm-hmm. And I my great experience in Saudi Arabia has been meeting people there, learning about them, learning about their life and 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 I mean just like seeing how how I guess as human beings how how the values are mm-hmm. how different they are to us but how the same at, at the same time you know how similar at the same time and mm-hmm. um, i'll say that i've never experienced hospitality like i've experienced Freshman. in saudi arabia Freshman. you know as a business traveler mm-hmm. uh, and that goes for you know men and women who, who go over mm-hmm. there you go there um and um yeah, it's somewhere that I'd I'd love to continue working you know, it's uh, I think we've done some 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 great things. Um
1: and how, how do you think like they are growing? Mm. Like because like if you read uh everything, they people are always comparing the West against the yeah, East. Sure. And for me it seems like they're evolving in a completely different way and they shouldn't be compared at all. Right, 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 right. So do you think that's like any reason on this yeah. or do you think that they're evolving in a different way or right, right, right. the same way? I mean
2: people love people love black and white. Yeah. Right. People love to know where they stand. Mm-hmm. Are we winning? Are we losing? You know, yeah. and um, I don't I don't think that that often things are like that, maybe if you watch Star Wars films, yeah, which <laughs> I do, and I love them, of course. But um, you know, I think like the reality is that if you if you go and you spend time in these um, you know these different places around the world, you realise that it's not. It's not that they're behind. I have a lot of people saying, "Oh, how far behind this is Saudi Arabia," mm-hmm. and I think I. I don't think that's the right question to be asking. I think it's how they're different, because, you know, of course, there are some areas where, you know, in terms of let's say um, use of cloud technology, I think Saudi Arabia is behind the UK, for example. So we're a lot more into using cloud technology than they are in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons is because they don't have for example an AWS data center in mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia whereas we do in the UK um, and then there are other areas where i think that they're far they're far ahead of us so for mm-hmm. example um, you know i believe the rollout of 5g is going to be much faster in Saudi Arabia than it is mm-hmm. in the UK so you know if you're looking for a kind of black and white who's ahead who's mm-hmm. behind i don't i don't think that exists i think it's a is a different culture a different society and um I, I, I love it for that. It's a really exciting place to go and work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of, they're a young population. They're very sort of um, uh, intellectually mobile population. They're excited. Um, they see opportunity ahead of them. Um, they're really keen to transform the way that their, com- the, their um, the economy inside their, their country, obviously it's very mm-hmm. oil-based yeah. and they're very keen to, to embrace opportunity, new technology. Um, and all of that's, you know, super exciting.
1: Yeah. And how do you like build such a big present in the, in Saudi (laughs) and Emirates? Do you think it's just the amazing products and the work that you've been doing? Yeah. Do you think there's anything else?
2: Um, well. Um, i think that's the that's the, the that's the centre of it definitely mm. is you know the things that we've done have, have really delivered for our customers out there yeah and yeah when i say really delivered it's jaw dropping you know what mm-hmm. what what has been done um so you know um you know massive telecommunications companies you know 25% of their revenue going mm. through the products that we, that we build, yeah. you know that kind of thing um and i think so it the society is different over there we have huge credibility because of our the projects we've been involved in um and i think that that's that's a great foundation and then on top of that i I think that what we've always tried to do out there is be really just really straight in terms of you know our business i mean i think we we just generally do that it's one of Mm -hmm. our values you know people say here's the budget to deliver a project we deliver it as close as we possibly can to the timeline mm-hmm. and as close to what they want not necessarily what they ask for yeah. you know as as possible for that for the for the for the budget they've given us mm-hmm. and i don't think that that's necessarily the experience that people have with other organizations yeah. who work for them mm-hmm. so i think that difference and i think that difference is particularly stark in saudi arabia because i think that a lot of changes to projects do happen, mm-hmm. and organisations there are very used to that really impacting the quality of the delivery. Whereas with us, I think we're very good at not impacting the quality. Yeah. Advising our customers where they can make changes without it costing mm-hmm. more money, for example, without them having to go back to their boss and ask for more and more and more and more. Yeah. Um. You know, and I think I think that I think that works really well.
1: That's awesome. I think you just celebrated like ten years of yeah. business, right? What do you think is going to be the next 10 years? Uh, Having in mind that, the te- technology is always changing, right? Yeah, what What do you think is going to be the 10 years for, the next 10 years for Future Workshops?
2: So the next 10 years for Future Workshops. So um, obviously, we're, you know, as a, as, a, as a company, we're really founded on the strength and the expertise that, we, that we've retained inside the business and the people inside the business. And I think that it's all about really making sure that we can as a company bring our skills forward and keep evolving them
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and what i what i really want for the company is i want to grow our pers- our own product portfolio that's really important um we've made great start there mm-hmm. i think where our revenue split something like 60 40 towards technology that we build mm-hmm. and license versus um technology that we that we that we kind of give to our customers or sell to our customers. Mm-hmm. So we moved in that direction a lot. With um, you like your own products, right? Exactly. You just build your own products. Build your own products. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So either we license those on a B2B mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, basis with um, other companies mm-hmm. um, or we would sell them direct to customers. But the majority of the success so far, in fact, all of the success so far mm-hmm. has been through licensing to other businesses. Yeah. Um, and that's been great, you know, so we want to grow that, um, it, that expertise that we've retained inside the business is massive, it's huge. There's a huge set of, um, expertise and, and, you know, we kind of think of it like a kind of an iceberg, you know, at the top, there's what people see, but there's mm-hmm. a load of other expertise yeah. that goes into building their projects that they mm-hmm. don't see. And, um, what we want to do is obviously turn that into something we can get repeated and recurring revenue for more and more and more and more. And then on the other side, you know, I I really believe that um, apps and not just mobile apps, but all apps, should be part of a a bigger platform strategy for organizations. Mm -hmm. And the platform strategy should be aligned with the company's core business goals. And I think the more and more 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 we want to get involved in either licensing technology into that platform or creating that platform, Mm -hmm. Um, but we want to be a delivery partner at that level, whatever the business arrangement is.
1: That's awesome. I just have one last question. Yeah. She's like, What is it like to be Matt Brooks Smith? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, what do you invest your time in? Uh, what is it like to be you? <laughs> uh,
2: it's amazing. Uh, I'm really, I do, I've, yeah, very uh, like. Yeah, so I, you know, I love my job. I love coming to Future Workshops. I love working with everybody here. Um, I love my customers mostly on most days. <laughs> uh, I love the the products that we build. It motivates me. I love being part of um, the industry that we're part of. You know, um, great example. You know, um, I've had an iPad for ages, and uh, to be honest, it's I've been struggling to fit it into my daily routine. When the <laughs> iPad Pro came out, I bought it with a with an Apple Pencil. And now I sit on planes doing calligraphy and you know, and it and I'm so excited by the by the iPad Pro. I'm not sure whether how long that's going to stick for,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but I love being part of an industry where where we can, you know, where that's part of my job basically getting excited about, yeah. about tech. You know, yeah. it's amazing for me. And I've got I've got a beautiful family, I've just got married this, this summer, mm-hmm. so I'm really happy about that. Um to my wife, who's a Singaporean employer, and beautiful daughter who's eight years old and I have a, um, uh, a dog who loves to bite my feet and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, wake me up in the middle of the night and but who I love as well and uh, yeah I mean I try and exercise because uh, it keeps me healthy hopefully and, <laughs> uh, and I, I enjoy it and love playing football so yeah I just I don't know um, I mean I think the two things that matter most to me are you know family and and uh and future workshops, basically, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I always want to improve those things, but it's not like I necessarily want more. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm happy. I'm very happy. At, you know, it's, I, lo- I, lo- I love uh, everything I do, basically. So yeah.
1: that's great. I think this is great. Thank you very much for this, man. Thank you.